Today's episode of the BS Podcast on the Rigor Podcast Network. Brought to you by DAZONE. What a week for DAZONE. They had the biggest heavyweight boxing upset in 15 years. On Saturday night, Ruiz beats Joshua. Where were you? Did you have the zone? What about Change Up? What about their brand new live whip around show across the league presented by the MOB and the zone? They get the best plays as they happen. They get expert analysis from hosts who bring a fresh personality, new perspective to the game. It's on every night of the week. Listen, just go get the zone. It's available on nearly every device. Download the DAZN app in the Apple or Android app store. Sign up by creating an account. Start watching across any of your devices. Go to DAZN.com to sign up. D-A-Z-N. Hey, what about State Farm? During the finals, a clutch teammate makes all the difference. With a State Farm agent on your team, you can have someone who comes in clutch when you need it most. Hey, it could be your own personal Andre Iguodala. Who comes up clutch more often? When you need it most, than Andre Iguodala. Draft a State Farm agent to your team. Save when you combine your home and auto insurance. State Farm, here to help life go right. We're also brought to you by TheRinger.com, the world's greatest website, where we have a new NBA mock draft. Two rounds. We have uh, we are really starting to hone in. It is coming up in three weeks. Check that out. Check out the Ringer Podcast Network, where we have relaunched one podcast and then launched another podcast, Ringer Dish, our celebrity culture podcast, which debuted today with a deep dive on the rise and fall of Benifer, Ben Affleck and J-Lo. That is on the Ringer Dish podcast. We have four coming up this week for that. And then we have changed Channel 33 to the Press Box. David Shoemaker, Brian Curtis, twice a week now. So subscribe to that one if you haven't subscribed to it already. They have a new podcast up as well. That is a really good buy. They'll be awesome. Tuesday and Fridays uh, this week. Coming up, the man, the myth, the BS Podcast Hall of Famer, Chuck Klosterman. First, our friends from Pearl Jam. All right, on the line right now, we've been doing this, I think, for 12 years. I think the first the 12th anniversary of the first podcast I ever did was like last week or two weeks ago or something. Chuck's been here the whole time. Chuck Klosterman, how are you? Perfect. I You stunned me today. You said you weren't watching Chernobyl, but you've been saving it. But I, 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 I'm hard-pressed to think of any piece of, uh, of media that's more in your wheelhouse than the five-episode Chernobyl miniseries. Yeah, I, I'm going to watch it. I have a have a medical procedure coming up, and I've, I've got a recovery period afterwards, so I'm going to watch it all that day, along with, uh, there's like this, uh, this new Bob Dylan documentary coming out on Netflix. I'm going to watch that. I'm going to read David Halverstam's The 50s. That's what I'm going to do for two days. Wow. I like that you have it all planned out. Yeah. Yep, you're two it's days all after a medical procedure. Great. Yeah. Let's uh let's start with NBA and then we'll circle back to TV because I want to talk about Fleabag. We have a whole agenda. We haven't talked in a while. I texted you asking you what you thought the world would be like right now in 2019 if we took like 1994 era David Stern and just put him in charge of the NBA right now? Would the league be better or worse? Would it be more interesting? How does it play out? Well, you know, it's kind of a, it's an intriguing question, Bill, because I think for the most part, 
isn't okay. We all kind of concede that Silver is a great commissioner. I think everyone, I just think he seems great to me. Okay. Um, and yet I never kind of considered this before. Like one thing that I think would be different is I feel like he would, that Stern would have shut down a lot of the controversies over all this officiating. Yeah. I, I don't think he would have put up with that because Silver actually seems to be moving into it. Yeah, he's Silver is all about transparency. He's he's almost like a peacetime president. And Stern was a wartime president at all times. So the officiating thing, if it became a controversy, he would have just put his foot into the into the ground and really dug in and battled everybody on it and not been transparent about it, I feel like. Well, I mean, what's so interesting to me about sort of the silver administration is he seems to be doing something that I would have thought would have been a bad idea, but I think is the right idea, which he's allowing the league to move in this direction where the games are the second most important part of it. Right. Like I think the natural inclination as a commissioner would be to fight against that, but he seems to have realized that, the way people consume sports now is closer to the way they used to consume like celebrity gossip or, or kind of, you know, news in a way. And, and I don't think he really minds the idea of people debating the problems with officiating or the idea that we're talking constantly about, where Kawhi Leonard is going to play next year, even though he's in the finals right now, <laughs> or the amount of time that we discuss this, what's going on with the Lakers. I just think that it's, it is now as if like, these are pretty kind of meaningful finals. I would say it's like, if, if golden State wins this, that probably makes them the second best basketball dynasty ever yeah. at the pro level. Yes. And it's obviously the biggest, period in history for Canadian basketball. There's, you know, the, the, the storylines with the Warriors is real interesting because they're just devastated by injuries and still feel like they're in command. And yet there is more conversation about ancillary aspects of the league than there is about these games. And you would think that would be bad. Like if somebody had told me that you know, this is sort of the game plan that we're going to shift the emphasis off the games onto all the storylines around it. But it seems to be making basketball more popular because I think, especially among a lot of young people, it's like they don't want to sit through the games. They just want to follow it. Or they second screen the games. It, w- it would be the equivalent of if you and I didn't actually ever do a podcast, but we just talked all the time about how we might do another podcast. And it, <laughs> Except that wouldn't work at all. What would be there? Would be no, no one would know but us. It would be more like no. I was on the if podcast, I was on the podcast saying like if our podcast was just a discussion about podcasting. No, if if I just kept coming on the podcast and talking to Kyle about how you might come on the podcast, but I didn't know and that was <laughs> that was the podcast. True, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I I heard Coward make this point, and. I don't know if I 100% agree with it, but I liked the where he point was. I just, the point I just made. No, no, not, no this is a different point. Okay. He was saying how okay. he embraces this whole world where the games have become secondary 
because he says this is what's happened in politics. He's like, the actual art of doing politics, that's on C-SPAN. C-SPAN gets low ratings. The art of talking about what happened on C-SPAN is what really is the business with MSNBC and all these different Fox News, all these different channels. The the talking about the culture of the lawmaking is what people care about. It, what's weird to me is basket the, the game should still be the number one priority and the ratings would suggest that they are. But it's also crazy to me that, as you pointed out, I th- actually think this is a really good finals. I think the storylines are about as good as we're going to get when you when you factor everything in. And yet the Lakers can blow it off the page whenever they want. All the Lakers have to do an hour from now, just do one weird thing. Just leak something, some other story, or they're really make, they've offered the whole team for Anthony Davis. And that would blow the blow game three out of the water. And the crazy thing is game three is one of the most fascinating game, finals games we've had in recent memory that's not a game seven, where you have this Warriors team that is now teetering to the finish line of this half-decade run. We don't know if Klay Thompson is playing. Like They don't even have a backup for Klay Thompson. They just have to play weird guards and swingmen in that position. We don't know if Durant's coming back. Looney seems like he broke his collarbone. I don't know how you play so with whatever he's he has. He's yeah, not com- He's not coming back. Yeah. I mean, I just, or, uh, that's what I just read now. It's like, he's out. I mean, and he's a, become a real good player. Yeah, so I would, he, I would assume like he was out. He fractured his collarbone. You know, people are like, it's going to be game to game. It's like, what? You can't play with a fractured collarbone. So anyway, I think that all that stuff's really I fascinating. Say about, this, yeah, about this coward thing you mentioned. Okay, but here's what's the, the most, I don't know, perplexing thing about it. Okay. Yes, that happens in politics. And a big reason that happens in politics is because, people aren't really engaged with the minutiae of how things work. So it's like, you know, it, it, you see this with people who really love Elizabeth Warren now. They're like, she lists all these policies, right? But a lot of people are like, I'm not really interested in reading about policies. I want to just sort of hear these big picture ideas. What are these personalities like? The, 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 the conversation outside of that in politics is because it's easier and simpler and sort of easier to digest. In basketball, it's the opposite. Yeah, like all this salary cap stuff, it's more complicated. <laughs> like I, 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 it's much easier for me now to understand the game that's on the floor than all these like uh, all like the cap exceptions and all this stuff. It's like that. I, it's it's odd to me, or or all this stuff that's going on with the Lakers. I mean, that was like Baxter Holmes wrote a long story. Okay, that's not like oh, you can look at that in five seconds and 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 kind of deduce what is going on there, you know, but that's what people are drawn to. It's like they want politics to be simplified, but they want sports to be more complicated. Yeah. Well, that's why I like the coward point, but I didn't totally agree with it because fundamentally it's just boring to watch people in front of a microphone talk about policy on C-SPAN. Basketball should be the most fun thing to do. The drama and soap opera of it have, um, even like game two, right? Game two was awesome. One of the most fascinating things that came out of game two is that two minute video of Clay Thompson greeting the Warriors players after the game. Did you, you must've seen that. Yeah. And he's got a huge ice pack on his hammy. And I, I loved it because like we tried to do this show courtside last year for HBO and we just weren't allowed to use a lot of the behind the scenes stuff like that. And that was like a real moment where you have Clay greeting each person 
differently. You have Durant kind of looming around, seeming super happy. And then all of a sudden Drake shows up and Clay gets mad that Drake's there. He's like, get your bum ass out of here. And Durant's kind of trash talking him, but good naturedly. And the whole thing was as fascinating as anything that happened in the game. And that was a really interesting game. And so I, I don't know. I, I feel like the games have become this one piece of this giant content jigsaw puzzle that the NBA has figured out how to navigate really well. And the other thing that happens that we see over and over again, just saw it today when he came on, all due respect to Shams, but Shams Sharania wrote this, uh, he, he posted this thing today about the, the Pelicans are now listening to offers for Anthony Davis. They, they're not, they're basically, they're, they're engaging calls now. And it's like, well, so what were they doing before when somebody called about Anthony Davis? Were they putting their fingers in their ears and going, no, nah, 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 not listening. Nah, 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 nah. Like, they would just go to, go to voicemail. If their voicemail was just filling up with like various GMs calling there. Yeah. No, yeah, Chuck, I told you, I'm not talking about this. Yeah. Hang up right now. <laughs> like, this is just ludicrous that this is a story that they're, they're having conversations with people who call them. So I don't, this is just, I guess where basketball is, but steering it back to the Stern Silver thing, I do feel like a lot of this stuff would have made Stern mad. I don't think he would have liked, I, I think the Lakers thing, he would have absolutely been out of his mind that this was one of the league's signature franchises and this complete shit show. The story comes out that had been rumored for two months and then it finally comes out. And that same day, Magic Johnson's on ESPN and they're just debunking the story with Stephen A. Smith and all, all the guys that he's buddies with. I think Stern would have lost his mind. I really do. I, I don't know what he would have done, but it, it, it would have been an overreaction. But, but what's he supposed to do? I mean, what I, I, I would like, that was part of the story that like, uh, you know, somebody comes up to Silver at dinner and is sort of like, uh, you know, I think Tyron Lue should be coaching the Lakers or whatever, yeah. you know, Rich Paul, well, what would, What's his What's his reaction supposed to be to that? What I, I, I'm not sure what a commissioner is supposed to do if there is internal problems with the franchise, regardless of whether it's the Lakers or you know if it's the Hawks. I don't. But what's that's what's his What's he supposed to do there, or what even could he do? I. It's interesting because he's he's somebody that for years it was a good cop bad cop thing with Stern. And Stern was the bad cop and Silver was the good cop. And as he worked his way up and gained more and more influence, he was always the guy that the owners went to. A lot of cases, the players went to. He built the relationships. And Stern was over there, like the old guard. Oh, I'll talk to David and like all that stuff. He, he was the conduit. But then he became the commissioner. And I think he still has a lot of you know, those built-in relationships that he's had with owners that he helped bring into the league and players that he's known their whole careers that he's really made a concerted effort to get to know. And I was like, when I did that thing at the Sloan conference with him, it was, it was people were, were stunned to hear him talk about how worried he was about the mental health of some of his players and just how he was shocked by how unhappy they were. It was more interesting to me that he even had an opinion on that that he had tried to get oh. to know so many of the players, you know, cause that was the opposite of how Stern rolled. Stern wouldn't have cared. Oh, it is. It's well, I, I don't know if, if I would say Stern wouldn't have cared, but it's, it's, there's definitely two different sort of styles. I mean, okay. Talk about differences. Uh, okay. I'll see if I can remember this. Remember the series where it was the Suns and the Spurs and like Amari Stoudemire came off the bench after 
Nash got kind of knocked into the scoring table yeah. and they couldn't play it. Okay. When that, when that happened, you know, it, it seemed like a, just an obvious example of the, the misappropriation of the rule. Okay. Like that, there's, there's, you're, you're hurting the series and you're hurt. You probably cost the sun the title possibly um, by making that decision. I can recall Stern going on um, like PTI or whatever. He's doing the five minute segment and Kornheiser is asking him like, why don't you just wave it this time and let Stoudemire play? Like, why don't if, if you agree that this is, is sort of a um, like a, a misuse of, a, of the of the rule, uh, you know, what you can step in and like Stern's like, I can't do that. And Kornheiser's like, Yes, you can. You're the commissioner. Right. Stern's like, No, I can't because his policy was, I basically, um, you know, execute the rules as they exist. And the rules are the most important thing. I don't think Silver would do that in that situation. I think Silver would actually be like, you know what? The idea of the NBA playoffs is to have high-quality, entertaining basketball. And I'm not going to stop that from happening in order to enforce a rule that's imperfect. Now, I guess you could argue that, well, you know, that's like a cop who makes up laws on the go, but these aren't crimes. I mean, it's like there's, there really, it's hard to justify not having someone play in a game for an infraction that no one seems to think is a problem, you know? Yeah. And with Silver, you're right. He, he's willing to consider nuance, which is something Stern just never did. You know, Stern was always black and white with everything. It was like Stoudemire, he looked at that Spurs Sun series and just executed his decision based on what the rule was and considered no nuance whatsoever. He looked at the Seattle Supersonics OKC thing and basically just helped the Sonics go to OKC and was really, really responsible in a lot of ways for how it played out and just didn't care because he was trying to prove a point that if you didn't, if you didn't build a new arena in your own city, you might be in trouble. Then six years later, just did a 180 with the Kings and fought to keep the Kings in Sacramento. This is the exact same situation. And he, and all of a sudden he cared again. He was all over the map. Oh, he was, or like, or like stopping the Chris Paul trade from happening to the Lakers, but then allowing the Gasol trade happening, which seemed just at the time, just as unbalanced. Although in retrospect, not really. I mean, I was just having this conversation this week. Who's the best Gasol brother all time? Pal. Well, he was second team all NBA twice. Marcus All was first team once and defensive player of the year. I thought Pau was the best guy in the 2010 finals and should have won the finals MVP. I really thought he was the best player in that series. So I Marcus All has never done anything to that level. I guess the better question would be if you were just building a team from scratch, which guy would you rather have for the course of their career? Because you might say Marcus All because it's just harder to find a center for. 10 years who could do the stuff that he did, you know, he back to the Stern thing for one second. Um, like, look at, look at the Sterling thing, how that was another black and white thing with Stern, right? Where he was just like, I can't, I can't make an owner sell a team. I just can't. Sorry. You get to act like how you, however you act is the way you get to act. And they, he put up with the Sterling thing forever. And then when Silver took over and the Sterling thing kind of imploded with the tapes and stuff, Silver's just like, I don't know what the rules are, but we're getting rid of this guy. 
And that was it. And he made it happen. Um, I don't want this to sound like an Adam Kool-Aid session because I think there's some stuff that he's really screwed up the last couple of years, specifically the LeBron and the tampering and all that stuff. I just think he's been asleep at the wheel on it. And I actually do think it's bad for the league. And I think even reading that Baxter Holmes story, one of the one of the hidden kind of nuggets in that thing that I thought was crazy and I actually thought was going to be a bigger deal and nobody picked it up was that there's been three people closely associated with LeBron that have followed him to the franchises, to Miami, to Cleveland, and then to the Lakers that just go on the payroll of the teams and it's not a salary cap violation. Like his guy, Randy, has some job with the Lakers. That's somebody he grew up with. It would be like if I got signed by the Lakers and Joe House became, you know, the director of community development. It's well, well, kind of crazy I've, that 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 wasn't a bigger I, deal. I've never understood how that is enforced. So, I mean, I've, I've always wondered this. Like, okay, could could Mark Cuban say uh, sign a free agent, but also say, and you know what, when you retire, uh, you're going to be CEO of three of my companies. I mean, now he can't put that into a contract, but can he say that? How do you stop someone from saying that? Like, I don't, I, I've never, because the money now is so big that, you know, there was that long period where anytime a guy, this is actually, I guess, just before LeBron went to the Heat, because the team who had a player could always pay more, the argument was always, well, no one's going to take less money. These teams are going to be able to retain their superstars because they can pay slightly more and no one's going to say no to money. But the numbers are so huge now that if you're, if the difference is 168 million to 149 million, you know, that's not, that, that difference is so negligible in your mind. You almost need something beyond money to convince someone to make a decision right. uh, to go somewhere, you know? And I don't know how that's enforced or how you can enforce it. Well, that was my running joke with Dirk in in Dallas when he was taking less money every year. When he sold his documentary and Cuban's company bought it. And it was like, well, what if what if Cuban bought that documentary for like $38 million? What would come would like would the league be able to even do anything? I don't think they could. So with this Lakers thing. It said in the Baxter Home story, three people close to James are listed in the Lakers staff directory as employees. Robert Brown, whose title is personal security officer. Randy Mims, whose title is executive administrator, player program and logistics. And Mike Mancius, whose title is athletic trainer and athletic performance liaison. All three were also on the team payroll with James in Cleveland. So you take that, you take the fact that he... He uh, clearly was communicating with them well before he signed. And there's really nothing the league could do about that. They did some tampering stuff. Um, it, I, I just feel like Stern would have handled that whole thing differently. Because I think Stern is, was a little more wired like Goodell. Where Goodell, <laughs> Goodell is like, it's, this is now a, a mano a mano. This is now about ego and testosterone. I'll show you. You know, like how he did with Brady and Deflategate. And I, I could have seen Stern like kind of pitting himself against LeBron in a way. Almost like like kind of how he handled Jordan in the 90s. Like we still don't, we'll, we'll never know if he suspended Jordan or not. It's conceivable. I, I think 
the longer we get away from that, the less likely it seems. But I will say this to your large point. I mean, this would you say like Stern is more like Goodell. Well, he's in between Silver and Goodell, but he does share one thing, which is that he ultimately was fighting the idea of player power. And yeah. Silver is going with it. Because I think Silver's just like, it's going to happen. Um, like if I, you know, if I can, uh, if I can either actually do it or create the illusion of it or however you look at it, if I can put myself in a position where the players believe that I support uh, their sort of increased market share of the league or whatever, um, it's going to be better in the long term. And I think that's probably true. Right. Because it's just, um, although it's, it's definitely happening faster than I thought it was, but. You know, it, the other thing he does that Stern never did, Stern was always one of those old school, everything's fine. That was always his attitude with everything. It's fine. We're not changing anything. Stop it. And when he did change something, he made a big deal about, we've decided to do this. Silver is, is one of those, ever since he took over, and I really like this about him, is always talking publicly about maybe we should do this. This isn't working as well. I wonder if this would be a better idea. Maybe, maybe we do play too many games. Like he's kind, he kind of plays into the whole internet culture of how we follow basketball. Yeah, I think well, he's very concerned of the he was, schedule. He was, he was like talking about relegation and stuff, which <laughs> right. can't happen. Like it's not like the fact that he's. There's no chance that that. Could, there's no way it can be like, oh, the Knicks are the worst team in the league. They're in the G League now. For you. like that, like <laughs> that will that will never happen. No. But the fact that he'll just talk about it is is really odd because it's so like we're so used to not just Stern or Goodell, kind of anybody who's a commissioner of anything, unless it's wrestling or boxing or something, tends to always err on. I'm not commenting. I'm taking the conservative stance on. I mean, yeah. it's just the normal way to do it. I'm not going to talk about something. Don't give me hypotheticals or whatever. Like, Silver never says that. Yeah, no. Silver's never like, I don't engage with hypotheticals. If you came to him and said, what if the aliens did come down and we got to play them? You know, who, who, he'd be like, well, I, you have to first have a, go to, you know, you know USA basketball. and you <laughs> talk about it, you know? <laughs> well, I have formed an alien committee. Just in case this ever happens, it's being run by Jerry Colangelo. Yeah, like Goodell, Goodell's attitude is always, you know, it's this air of like, "fuck off," that don't bring this to me. I'm not, I'm not discussing this. Stop it. And then when they finally announce that something's changed, they do it in this big self-serving kind of, "we've decided to do this." I've, I've thought this. Silver always seems like he's soliciting opinions from everybody around him, which I think is ultimately a good quality. Obama was a little bit like that, actually, where Obama was always always seemed just kind of curious what everybody else thought about what he should do versus just being like, we're fucking doing this. Like, just follow me now. Um, but I do think as we're heading into this era of um, just every year, you know, dudes leaving t the biggest ticket dudes leaving teams. And you look at the free agency this year, there's like 20 teams that are up in the air. Part of me thinks this is bad and he hates it. And the other part of me thinks he must absolutely love this because it's just constant turnover. Because if you compare it to baseball, 
one of the many reasons that I think baseball is just dying as a regular season sport from kind of people just talking about it like us is these long ass contracts. You know, I we're never going to have the where do you think Mike Trout's going to play conversation because he signed for like 130 years with the Angels. You know, everybody signs these eight to 10 to 11 year deals and you just know they're not going anywhere. And I wonder like if baseball had kind of uh, adopted the NBA's shorter contract strategy, whether that would have been a better thing for baseball, you know, whether it's like four years, five years, that's it. Um, then you don't get stuck with Albert Pujols for 10 years. Um, then Bryce Harper, three years into his Phillies contract, isn't looking for a way out and all that stuff. There's more movement. Would that even be better? I don't know. It, we're heading toward a major league baseball strike. So that we'll, we're going to find out in a year. But do you think baseball could learn from the NBA? I mean, I mean, it learn and, and, and I, I just, and try to replicate what they do. I, I don't know if that would work. I mean, I just, you know, because basketball is a personality driven sport. Football is a game oriented sport. and Baseball is a team oriented sport. People care about baseball if they care about a specific team. The reason football is most popular is because it's actually the most popular game and sport to watch. Yeah, Basketball is growing in popularity, particularly with young people, because it's about the people who play it. Um, and uh, that's, a, that's just a very, a very different thing. I don't think you can make that happen. I mean, this is a question people are always asking is like, can you make culture? Can you decide we want a culture to be like this and just make it happen? This is not just in sports. This is in everything. Like, is that, can that only happen organically or can you just decide this is how it's going to be now? And I, so I don't know what baseball would do to sort of change. I mean, it's, it's like people still go to baseball games. It's a lot of games to go to, but you've right. got 81 games. You know, you know, that's a, that's a lot of money over the course of the summer. It's a lot of you know, time. That's like five, six yeah. hours a night. Um, wait, I have one more thought on this, but let's take a quick break. Let's take a break to talk about State Farm. Players and fans prepare all year for the finals. They need to be ready for anything. With a State Farm agent on your team, you can be ready for anything too. They can help you prepare for whatever life throws your way. Like the, like the Warriors right now. A lot of injuries. Clay Thompson, who knows if he's playing? Kevin Durant, who knows when he's coming back? Kevon Looney, who knows what's going up with his collarbone? Andre Godala, he's always got like three injuries going on at the same time. You never know. Here's the thing. Prepare for what life throws your way. Just give the ball to Steph Curry more. Get Boogie Cousins more involved. Be ready. That's what State Farm does. Talk to a State Farm agent today about combining your home and auto insurance. Get a teammate who can help you prepare for the unexpected State Farm here to help life go right. All right, back to check. So you're talking about the culture stuff. And, you know, it's no secret that basketball is probably a better fit for culture and where we are right now. But it did strike me like this whole Drake thing that's been happening during the finals and what a massive subplot it is, which has lineage going way back to Jack in the uh, 84 and 85 finals and Spike Lee, obviously. And, you know, this, this isn't our first rodeo with a celebrity being a subplot in the finals. I think what's, what's really stood out with this one is 
it kind of feels like he's an NBA player, even though he's not. It feels like the circles that he swims in are the exact same circles professionally, um, wealth-wise, and culturally as some of these guys. So when you have Durant trash-talking Drake back and forth after a game, it feels completely natural. Like, can you imagine after a World Series game, if they had some video backstage and, or so, you know, some Instagram video and it's like Mike Trout is talking shit to Adam Levine? <laughs> or like, like, I don't even know what the equivalent would be. It would be ludicrous. We'd be like, or Tom Brady is talking shit to Kenny Chesney. Like, it'd be insane. But with Drake and KD, it, it totally made sense that they're going back and forth because it feels like all part of the same. And I think that's been the NBA's biggest advantage is just culturally, it ties into all these aspects of pop culture and you have Kendall Jenner dating Ben Simmons and it just seems like aligned. And I don't know how baseball even has a chance of breaking into that. Well, I mean, they, they probably don't. And I'm guessing that there are many baseball fans listening to that podcast, this podcast right now going like, I hope it doesn't fucking happen. Like some people hate that, you know, a lot of people hate that. A lot of people particularly drawn to baseball hate that, you know? Um, I, uh, yeah, but think though, back in the fifties, would you, would you argue, would you argue that, that Drake's involvement with with these finals, um, uh, that, that adds something that you like? I, my answer would probably be, no. I mean, like there's, it would be a pro cons list. I'd probably have four pros and seven cons on it. I guess I was making the larger point of in the fifties, Joe DiMaggio dated Marilyn Monroe and it made total mm-hmm. sense for that era. It was baseball and, and celebrity culture just crossing over and becoming one and the same, which it should have been because baseball players and boxers were the biggest athletes we had back then. And now basketball has moved into that world. I, I don't even feel like, you know, in, I don't know how many football players would even be on the level of like seven guys in this finals. I feel like even Kawhi is like a, a massive star now and he doesn't barely speaks, but I, I feel like everybody has an opinion on him. Well, no, it, yeah, it is. It, I, I was having this conversation recently. Who is more famous, Kyrie Irving or Cam Newton? Kyrie Irving. You definitely say he's more famous. Yeah, I think he is. I think the helmets thing is a, is a huge detriment for the football players. Oh, it's oh sure. I mean, that's the kind of thing. I mean, it it, it just it seems to me as though this conversation that we had began talking about uh, Draymond Green. Yeah. Um. You know, Draymond Green's the fourth best player on his team, and how many NFL players are more famous than Draymond Green? It doesn't seem like a lot. Um, one thing that has been kind of fun about these playoffs is I had forgotten that Draymond Green was good. I know. I think he had but, forgotten too. Like, <laughs> I, I just, I, I, you know, he's kind of a guy who does a little bit of everything. So when he's out of shape, it just kind of translates into a bunch of small little numbers across the board. And it's been real fun to watch him just sort of, he really will throw the pace of the game off when he feels the other team is gaining momentum because they just hit a three. And he'll just take the ball and drive it all by himself to the basket. Right. Even if he doesn't score, it kind of shakes the whole thing up. And it's like, because no one does that, right? I mean, nobody, that, that 
that's the kind of thing like if you're in seventh grade, your coach takes you out for. Right. But when he does it, it really, it really kind of just, it's just like kind of the whole thing kind of wobbles for a second. And he also has a lot of no, no, yes plays, but then a lot of no, no, no plays like those, uh, those two long outlets he threw in game two, where he's always teetering on he, when you're watching him thinking that he just shouldn't be doing whatever he's trying to do. And then most of the time it works out for him. I think, you know, going back to what you said earlier about how, how really great this finals matchup is. I think there's so many good things about it. Like I'm mad that we just talked about Drake for two minutes, but um, we have, you have the, the dueling subplots of Kawhi and KD, maybe not being on their teams next year. And just like, could this be the end of something for both sides? Like Toronto might be in a full rebuild next year for all we know. This could be this magical one-year run like a sports movie and then next year they go 35 and 47. And then with KD, this half-decade run that they've had and this journey he had this year where everybody had him signed up with the Knicks and then we get to the playoffs and he kind of had become underappreciated and then by midway through round two, all of us are like, this guy's the best guy in the league. And then it became, wow, the Warriors don't need him to win the title. And now it's become the Warriors really need him if they have any chance of winning the title. Well, and he might be leaving yeah, in three weeks. But and, these reactions are just, I, they happen so fast now. Now I see, I think you were on this, but I see a bunch of people. It's like, Ecuador is going to make the Hall of Fame. That yeah. seems to be the thing people. Now, so I, I have a, variety of questions about that. Okay, yeah. You were talking with House about like who is sort of the comparison. I mean, okay, isn't Ron Harper sort of the obvious comparison with him? Somebody who had two careers and ended up the second part of his career kind of being like a clue, a kind of a key kind of blue guy for a championship team. I don't think Ron Harper is going to make the NBA Hall of Fame. Yeah, but the thing, I he, mean, he's you, better than Ron Harper though. I think the, sec, the second version of Ron at Harper. His best, at no, his best? When Ron Harper was at his peak early in his career, no, I'm I don't saying, know if Iguodala was ever I'm saying the second act. His second act, he was just a better and more impactful basketball player, I think, than Ron Harper was. Because Ron Harper hurt his knee and was really mm -hmm. never the same yeah. athletically after that. Iggy has but, just but kind of... But became a great defender. He did. He did. He, he became a role guy. He couldn't really shoot, um, but was just kind of a good athlete who knew where to go and what I mean, to do. Is Michael Cooper in the Hall of Fame? I don't think he's in the Hall of Fame. He's not, he never had, he never had that run of at least being the best guy on a team for a while. I, but my, he was as critical to the Lakers overall dynasty. I would say more so than Iguodala has been. I mean, yeah, I'm not trying to attack the guy. He's a good player and all that, you know, very good player. But um, I just wonder if anyone will be saying he's going to make the Hall of Fame if he has three bad games in the remainder, remainder of this finals. I feel like that will just be taken off the board because it just keeps happening that we just <laughs> say these things and then two days later, no one ever says it again. I actually think he will make the Hall of Fame. And it, it, it says more about the Hall of Fame than it says about him. It's that the, they're just, if you're putting six, seven people in every year, regardless of whether you have six or seven candidates, then... Well, so then, so then all the Warriors are going to make it then. Because obviously Curry and Durant obviously are. Clay would have to then. Is Green going to make it? So there's going to be five guys from this team in the Hall of Fame. There's not five Celtics on the Hall of Fame from those eight teams. No, I mean, there's like a lot Ainge of Celtics. Ainge shouldn't make the Hall of Fame. Yeah, Ainge shouldn't make the Hall of Fame. Ainge shouldn't make it. I think, that, I think that would be the cutoff. Ainge was never like even a top three guy on his own team. 
But I think so when was Iguodala a top three guy on his own team outside of the, the Sixers? But I'm saying uh, if 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 that had just been his career, we wouldn't even be talking about it. Well, but I mean, Antoine Jameson's going to make the Hall of Fame. That's going to happen. <sighs> it's crazy. I, I know. I, it's nuts. I this is where I we're heading. I don't know if that will happen. He's going yeah, twenty thousand yeah. points. He's going to make it. Mitch Richmond made it. I know. But what did Mitch Richmond do? But here's the deal with Mitch Richmond. Before he made the Hall of Fame, people talked for a long time about how he's one of the best guys who didn't make the Hall of Fame. And then as soon as he did, everyone's like, he's terrible. <laughs> Making the Hall of Fame was the worst thing that happened to Mitch Richmond. I like, think like, he's probably he was, happy with prior it. Prior to that, well, he probably, I'm sure he's pleased with it, but I'm saying from, from a dude's talking about basketball perspective, it really hurt him. There's no way you and Joe Hauschen attacking Mitch Richmond in 2019, he doesn't make the Hall of Fame. <laughs> yeah, you would remember him positively, I would say. No, he was that, a good player. No, House yeah. is a bad example for that question because they traded Chris Webber for him and then Chris Webber went on to be awesome with the Kings. So they, House actually probably has some animosity against it. it. It is interesting though with the, just like in general, like you mentioned Draymond Green. I actually do think he'll end up, if he, if assuming his career doesn't just completely tail off, like, he will end up making it someday because he's been kind of the epicenter of this Warriors half decade run that you, you just said, if they win the title this year, this is probably the second best team of all time. And he's been the engine that, you know, has always been there, the defensive force and really a special all around guy who doesn't really have any offensive above average skills other than he can go to the basket. Um, doesn't have a post-up move, isn't somebody you ever would have thought would be like a top three guy on a team that would win four titles in five years. But, uh, you know, I think... Yeah, these these are all reasons to be like, remember Iggy? He was pretty good. You know, that's like, I, I, I can't, I don't buy this argument that if you had swapped him out for 25 other guys yeah. of a similar set... Nah, nah, you're, now Warriors, you're going nuts. That, no, no, that the Warriors would... So you're saying without Iguodala, the Warriors would not be in a position to win four out of five titles. That's, oh, no. You, you change him, somebody, they win two out of five. What, I don't buy that. If you just put if you just put some typical, decent swingman in that spot, I do not think they win four out of five. I think he does which, a lot of stuff year, for them. Which year do they lose? Probably 15. Maybe this year, unless the guy is... Unless the, the guy who they replaced them with is a healthier version of, I think I can't think of any fifteen. Definitely, maybe not one of the seventeen, eighteens. Because remember, he he guarded LeBron for four straight years in the finals, and I also mm-hmm. think I think he's an overqualified talent for the role that he's in right now. Is the other thing, I think to win to to win year after year after year like this. You have to have at least one guy who's sacrificing something pretty substantial. And usually you have two. And I think the two guys mm-hmm. that have really sacrificed who could have been in better situations and gotten better stats other places were him and Clay. Hey, and we saw once the rant went out, everyone was like, oh yeah, Clay's good. Like Clay's been good this whole time. He's just the fourth option on one of the best teams ever. And I think with Iggy, he could have stayed in Denver and probably scored. 17 to 18 a game for the next couple of years and been a sure. bo- borderline all-star player. He is, which is an argument against him making the hall of fame. 
Well, do you think, think? Do you think Robert Horry should be in? That he would be he if if Iguodala would get in absolutely, but I wouldn't put either of them in the Hall of Fame. They're like sort of classic guys who remember about the NBA playoffs, which is different than the NBA season. But the Hall of Fame is a, is should be kind of a a separate thing. I mean, you know. See, uh, I would have I would have Horry in also, there. Also, tell me this. Tell me this. If Iguodala misses that three he takes, yeah, and the Raptors get a rebound, call timeout, move it to half court, and Kawhi gets a good shot off, does anybody who has said he's going to make the Hall of Fame say that this week? No one does. It's because of one shot in one game, which reminds people that he's like, oh, he's a good guy who was a key member of this, you know, there's a huge shot or whatever. Like, I, I feel like I'm attacking this person who I generally <laughs> like and think he's a good player, but he's not a Hall of Fame player. I just, that seems real weird to me. Weren't you just saying that he hasn't averaged 10 points a game for the last five years? Yeah. Well, I said a couple well, weeks ago on the pod that I thought he was going to make the Hall of Fame before he made the shot. He, here's the thing. When he, when he was taking that shot, I thought it was going in. And I, I think that says something because there, you know, there's always this debate about clutch how do you measure clutch? We don't have stats for it. Um, it's made up. The math says clutch is overrated, all that stuff. But all I know is in the last five minutes of a game like that, when they're down one, nothing, they have to win. Clay goes out. There's no way Steve Kerr wasn't like delighted to have Iguodala out there. Like if, if oh, anything, you would say like, there's just not a long list of dudes I would have wanted out there. And He's you could also argue like, if he was on the Rockets the last two series, if you just flipped him with whoever on the Rockets, it could have swung the series. So I don't know. I just, I like guys like that. I think Corey should be in the Hall of Fame. I did it. I put, when I did my basketball book, I had the Hall of Fame pyramid and I had a Horry like, I don't know, 84 or something like that. Cause I, I think the ability to kind of fade in the background, but then rise to the occasion in big moments on big stages is a talent. And it's not a talent we can measure with stats. And there's been well, and it's also very few guys like by that. The fact that you have to, you have to have the opportunity to be on the stage. There's a lot of guys will never know. Like who, for all we know, Reggie Theus would have been great in the clutch. Now he would have said, "Never heard the situation." Where <laughs> but that here's never the thing, happened. though. Yeah, well, that's a, but you look at all right. Take a look at my beloved Boston Celtics. The main reason the team struggled this year is is we had Horford, who's an Iguodala type guy, but the team actually needed an Iguodala type guy who's like, dude, I don't care about my stats. Just tell me who to guard. When when we have a big game, I'll step up. I don't care how many minutes I play. I'm going to be there till the bitter end for you guys. And instead, it was everybody like jockeying. I thought that quote he had about Curry. Did you see that quote he said? I, I, I couldn't believe it. That quote about uh, Steph's legacy mattered to him, basically. He was like, look, yeah, we're all in pain right now, yeah. but I really want this for Steph. I really want him to have this. I think it's important. Like... I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if you can put a price on having somebody who's really good, who's sacrificed something, who's also an incredible teammate. I think you, when if you're going to win multiple titles, you have to have people like that. So that would be my case. For it me. seems like, it seems like to me, that's the award you get like the NBA man of the year for and stuff like that. That's Maybe. a different thing. That would be a good, like if you talk about awards, th there should be an award for somebody like him it, because it's the type of guy who always ends up. I think Derek Fisher was like this. Derek Fisher is not going to make the Hall of Fame, but was weirdly valuable over and over again during that Kobe and then 
Kobe Shaq and then the Kobe run, like in the 09 finals, he made the biggest shot of that entire finals, you know? And and at a moment when it seemed like the series was going to flip. So well, I, know, he I like that shot against the, He made that shot against the Spurs too, that if he misses the, the Spurs probably beat the Lakers in that right. series. So, but I don't know why, I don't know why you wouldn't argue he should make the hall of fame. I mean, it would be, I feel like the criteria would be almost identical. Well, I think the thing with Iggy is that he's had a two act career and the first act was was good. I mean, he was like the best guy on playoff teams, but then has had the second act as just somebody that has been integral to the success of a really great team. So I, you know, you look at the Russell Celtics, there's guys from those teams in the Hall of Fame that you like Casey Jones is in the Hall of Fame. It's absurd. But I But think, that was a different situation though, because there was like 14 or 12 or 16 teams in the league. Less. And there was it, like ten. And, the way, and the, because of the regional draft and stuff, it's like it's like the Celtics had at times seemingly a fourth of the good players in the league on the same team. I will say I do love this about basketball, and and I think as the numbers have kind of taken over this decade a little bit, and you know the math and the advanced metrics, and I like a lot of it, but I do think it's awesome that it's impossible to evaluate guys like Iguodala correctly. And that's the difference in baseball and basketball, like in a nutshell. In baseball, we would be able to come up with whatever numbers we need to exactly explain the impact of somebody. And in basketball, it's it's a lot of nuance and it's a lot of the eye test and just memories and and watching how somebody responds in big moments like that. You, you think about game two, those last five minutes when Clay goes out and that crowd is crazy. And Kawhi is a beast and Toronto's really good, you know? And and I think we're gonna see in game three, if whether Clay plays or not, I you know, even if he plays, he's gonna be a little compromised. No Durant probably. I we're gonna find out a lot about Curry as can does he have that side of him? Can he carry a team at this level on this stage in this in a series like this? When he doesn't have the kind of help that he's had in the past, you know? He's always had at least one other guy. You think about like what LeBron did in 2015 or last year, where it's basically just him and it was still enough to almost win the title. And that's like the last question I kind of have about Steph. If if the Raptors are throwing everything at him, trying to take him out of the game, can he still be the best guy in the game? You know, like the Raptors will throw the kitchen sink at stopping him tomorrow. So how is he going to respond to that? I don't know. Uh, as a basketball historian, when was the last time a box and one was used in the NBA? Oh, how delightful was that? I, it was, it just, was amazing. It was, it's like, I was like, maybe they should start running like the flex offense or something. Like it was like a, a high school game kind of, but uh, it was, uh, I, I don't remember ever seeing that at the, in an NBA game because there was the period where of course you couldn't play zone at all. So that eliminated a big stretch of time. But I was trying to remember if I said, if I've seen that, do you remember seeing that? I have not. I have not seen that in NBA or or if somebody did it, I didn't notice it. I haven't seen somebody so blatantly do a box and one in a, in a big game in a long time. I, I actually don't understand why more teams don't do it. I think it's smart, you know, or at least to mix it up. At the, at the, Pro level, it should never work because there should be too many guys who can make shots. But the Warriors were in this weird shorthanded situation where it was like, ah, what do you do here? You know, but of course they have another Hall of Famer on the floor. So it should have, they should have scored at will, right? Yeah. The thing is, I like it as like to mix it up for a play or a couple minutes. I don't think you could do it as a 48 minute strategy. 
You said you had a question for me about Brooke Lopez's career. What is the question? Oh, yeah. Okay. So I was just, uh, you know, Brooke Lopez is kind of a fascinating guy this year, and his whole game is different. He shoots all these threes. And, you know, I was thinking about this. For a long time, big guys in the NBA could play super late in their career. I mean, Robert Parrish being the clearest example, but yeah. tons of guys like Olden Polonese or whatever. These guys, right. could, because there was just these, you know, if you were, you know, 6'11 or above, they just needed those bodies and stuff. So these guys could play late. So now he now plays on the perimeter exclusively. Does that mean he's going to have a shorter career because now he's totally skill-based once if he starts missing shots done or will it even extend it further? Cause he'll still be a big guy defensively, but he won't get beat down by playing in the block. Like, well, well, well the fact that Brooke Lopez is such a good three point shooter and guys like him are going to sort of become common. Like, is that going to extend the time these big guys play or will it shorten it? Because, they can't just rely on being big. They have to have skills too. You would think like the Sam Perkins analogy would go here, right? Where Sam Perkins had that extra mm -hmm. stretch of his career where he just basically became, you know, a stretch five. And I would think that's how it plays out. I think what's fascinating to me about Lopez is he still has the low post game. It's not like he traded it for, you know, it's not like he was oh, on he, he, he just eBay. added it. Yeah. yeah, he added it. But they, the Bucks. I thought this is one of the many mistakes they made in that playoff series was they treated it like he gave up the post game to become a three-point shooter. And I still think he has a lot of those skills. Like, if anything, I feel like he's a little bit untapped now because now that he has the three-point shooting, but he also has the other stuff, you could argue the guy should be awesome next year. You know, if it was on a team that actually went out of their way to try to use him. I don't, I don't know if the Bucks are that team, but if I was a team that had free agent money, I would be thinking about them. And it, and Just on the subject of big guys, have you watched any footage of uh, the kid going to Memphis, James Wiseman? No, that was Penny's big recruit, right? Do you, did you well, like him? Well, Penny's just, well, Penny's just like a recruiting machine, I guess, because of his AAU connection. It's totally bizarre. But this guy, you're going to like this guy. This guy is, I think, the beginning of something that, a few years ago, we would have said impossible. This guy now is showing that the way Durant is, is going to become a type of player. Oh, wow. Like this guy, this guy, he's seven feet tall. At the high school level, it looks like mostly dunks and threes is what he does. He's left-handed. He's seven foot and 210, same body. Um, but if you watch the footage of this kid, it's like, this is who he's modeling his game after. And I wonder if, like, it's this thing where it's like in the future, watching the NBA is going to be like watching ten Durants on the floor. Yeah, I mean, they, you you watch this guy. That's the first thing you'll think when you see. You know. Yeah, I've thought about that a lot about where this goes. You know, because the shooting is just getting better and better, and I think the biggest reason is be just because everybody has better form from the moment they become good at basketball. You know, like when we were growing up, every, every almost everybody had a different kind of shot, right? Like Jamal Wilkes's shot was different than Larry Bird's shot, which was different than Dennis Johnson's shot. Like everybody had a quirk to whatever their emotion was. And now it's just, 
these people coming off an assembly line, you know, that are just going to get better and better at this, it feels like. And I, and it, it's a little like what's happening in baseball where the pitchers, whatever the mechanics are in that, and now everybody can throw in like the mid to high 90s. And, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that's just kind of, there, you know, maybe that's just where pitching is going. Um, with the shooting, I, I don't know where this ends because I don't, I never thought we would just see people casually making 29 footers like this. Did you? See, it's no, inconceivable I, I, 20 years it, ago. It, it, you know, and, and, and the thing that I'm, I'll always wonder about is, uh, did things change or was it just never done? You know, like what is the difference in shooting, you know, percentage wise from shooting from 20 feet, 23 feet, 27 feet. Obviously, as you go back, the percentage is going to go down, but maybe it goes down negligibly. And if you're from 27 feet away, you're going to get an open shot. I don't, I don't know. I, would, I, 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 I often think to myself, like, it really would have been interesting to watch some of the players from the past if they had come up through AAU and high school and all that and all the conditioning that they do now and the way that they, you know, and let them play the way the game is now, I, I would just be fascinated because I can't, it, I, I don't believe that suddenly people got more dedicated about working on their shot. Well, I think what's you know, I happened, you know, I think what's happened now is if you're good, you're going to be targeted pretty quickly. You're going to be playing AAU. You're going to have people that know what they're doing, teaching you how to shoot. So you look at somebody like, Scotty Pippen, right? Grows up in a really poor part of Arkansas. Um, starts playing basketball a little bit late because he grew. Just had a weird shot and nobody ever fixed it. And I guess my question for where things are going is, are, is will we still have Scotty Pippins? I assume that we would. We're going to have like the late bloomer guys. Um, but what we're not going to have is, you know, like the 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 Larry Bird types where whatever motion he had would just be different. He would have been good, like age, age seven, age eight, whatever. Some coach would have been like, Hey, instead of shooting, instead of releasing the ball on the side of your head, what if you released it on from your forehead and just worked with them over but, and you over know, again? He did. Well, I mean, of course, but like, you know, he shifted that after a softball injury. He shot He's, more off his nose before he broke his fingers playing softball. That's why he shot off the side of his head. Oh, Bird that's a good point. He claims he was a better shooter before. I know. They always say that. But he, yeah. he still, he didn't have like the traditional, you know, you he think of, you think did. about like yeah. the Ray Allen, Mike Miller type of jump shot. And I always thought like, I remember when Mike Miller came in the league and I even would joke about this in my column, like, oh my God, like that jump shot. I, I would give like five years of my life to have that jump shot. Now it feels like 20 guys have that jump shot and guys are just coming in now with, with perfect form. You know, Jason Tatum has a weird shot. And that's one of the things I like about him. Like he almost releases it off the back of his head and it has more of a bloop to it. But for the most part, I don't know. I just, I just think well, everybody's I mean, just going to get better almost, and better. The shot's almost enough to have a job now. I mean, just think of throughout the 70s and 80s and 90s, how often there would be some guy in college who was a great shooter. And then people were like, he'll never play in the NBA. All he can do is shoot. Yeah. Oh, that's all I give you. Know, they'll kill him on defense. He can't handle, you know, it's all he can do is shoot. Now that would be enough. I mean, that's like, it is, it has become, you know, somebody was asking me about 
about Zion, you know, they were like, you know, is he going to be, the, is he going to be as good as LeBron? This is like a casual basketball fan. Yeah. Like, you know, absolutely. Like, you know. And I was like, well, you know, it's, it's, he's certainly the best college player I've seen in a very long time. He might be the best prospect from LeBron, but the weird kind of X factor now is if he's only a good shooter, he can't be elite. Yeah. It's like where, like if he's, if, yeah, if he's only like a good shooter, you know, in the past, it would be like a, you know, uh, you could have Blake Griffin's career or whatever, you know, but that, that wouldn't be enough now. Like for him to be an elite player, he has to be a very good shooter because it is the emphasis on that has completely outpaced every other skill you can have. Yeah. And the question is, for me, it comes down to the work ethic, right? Like Kawhi made himself into a good shooter. He just, he worked at it. He worked at it. He worked at it. He had a great shooting coach with the, with the Spurs. And eventually just by sheer force of reps and athletic ability became a good shooter. I personally think Zion's wired like that. And I don't think his shot's that bad to begin with, but. No, it's pretty good. It's pretty, I mean, I, I would be surprised if he's not great, but I'm just like, the thing is he can't to be a lock now. If somebody goes like this guy is a lock, he has to be an elite shooter first. So there's this guy. It's funny. You're talking about like, uh, everybody playing the same. There's this guy in the, in the NBA draft this year. Um, he's a guard from Washington. Mm -hmm. Matisse. I don't know how to say his last name. Thibel. How do you say it, Kyle? Don't do that. One Shining don't, Podcast don't producer, Kyle. I think that sounds right, though. The Matisse Thibel, yeah. something like that. And he's this guy who is an incredible defensive player. Incredible. And doesn't seem to offer any offense whatsoever. And nobody kind of knows what to do with it. Because, so in our, in our Ringer mock draft, he was 21. The, uh, the th they they call him a disruptive defender who posted all-time great block and steal numbers as the pillars of Washington zone. He averaged three and a half steals and 2.2 blocks a game, 40-minute games. Um, and it's just like, this guy's going to be an amazing defender. He's no offense whatsoever right now. All he is is lockdown defender. So they compared him to, hey, there might be some Danny Green, some Tony Allen, things like that. I, I watched some YouTube clips of this guy. I love this guy. I can't believe he's not in the top 20. Like, I know what this guy is. If he learns how to shoot, it's a bonus. But this guy is like exactly the type of guy you would unleash on somebody in a playoff series. I'm glad. My point is I'm glad there's still guys like that. We're, it, it, we're never just going to be these three-point shooting robots. There's always going to be weirdos who are outside the norm, I think. Who knows? Let's take a quick break, and then we got to talk about Fleabag. Let's take a break to talk about ZipRecruiter. Finding a new job, it's a lot of work. I remember in 2015 when I left ESPN, I had to find a new job. It was a lot of work. I talked to a lot of people. I eventually got hired by HBO. I started The Ringer. It was a lot of work. Well, what if you had your own personal recruiter to help you find a better job? That would I should have thought of that in 2015. ZipRecruiter's technology can do that for you. Download the ZipRecruiter job search app. Let it know what kind of jobs you're interested in. It's technology starts doing the work. The ZipRecruiter app finds jobs that you'll like. Put your profile in front of employers who may be looking for somebody like you. And if an employer likes your profile, 
ZipRecruiter lets you know. So if you're interested in the job, you can apply. No wonder ZipRecruiter is the number one rated job search app. Oh yeah. My listeners can download the free ZipRecruiter job search app today and you should. Let the power of technology work for you. Don't wait. The sooner you download the free ZipRecruiter job search app, the sooner it can help you find a better job. Back to Chuck. All right, next thing you want to talk about was you didn't you didn't bite on my whole thing. I wanted to talk about the uh, the the media basketball game that is somehow sponsored uh, by T-Mobile. I thought that was like the weirdest story it? of the I, year. Who's playing it? So Chris Haynes, who works for Yahoo, he organized this media basketball game during the finals for a Tuesday and sent this whole thing out. There'll be transportation, but didn't say right away it was sponsored. But now it's now he's admitting that it's sponsored. It's by a T-Mobile's court. There's a live stream on at Metro by T-Mobile and he did a hashtag sponsored. And I was like, where are we going? What, what, we're now having sponsored live stream media basketball games. And here's the, here's the thing I hate the most. I'm probably going to watch like 10 minutes of it. <laughs> I might, it might even, I might even be for 20. If somebody's like, uh, I'm like, what, like, if, like if Brian Winhurst is like getting a double double, like hang in there and like, just like, I want to see what his final numbers are. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> all right. So you want to talk about Matthew Bowling, this, uh, this sprinter who's breaking records left and white and, and there's a wrinkle and what's the wrinkle Chuck? Yeah. Well, okay. So this kid is like, he's a high school kid in Texas and I, I don't, I don't know any other way to sort of describe this. He's like, he appears to be the fastest white American ever. Uh, it just it doesn't seem to be any question about that. And I'm really nervous about what's going to happen as his star ascends. Like, I can see so many terrible things happening as he continues to succeed. Like, I can see him going to the Olympic trials next year and, like, taking fifth and Trump thanks him on Twitter or something. <laughs> oh, like, no. I, I can just, I, I mean, I, I totally can see that. Or, or, or the fact that he was already on like a, after he kind of dominated the Texas state meet, like he was on like high noon or something. And it's just this undercurrent of every discussion about him. Also, like I, he's very young. I don't know that much about him, but he doesn't seem lacking of confidence. <laughs> right. like he seems he seems very aware that he is a fast fucking guy. Yeah. Guys cannot run with him, you know? So it's not like Tim Tebow or something where every time he succeeds, he's like, oh, praise God or whatever. It doesn't seem like that's how it's going to be. And it seems as though this could be a real powder keg of division in sports. And I'm almost like want society to make a pledge now to like not talk about the fact that this fast kid is white, uh, even though I'm kind of doing it now and probably fueling the fire that I worry about. But it seems as though like he, if he becomes the fastest man in the world, which I think is, while not likely, completely plausible, he is going to be very famous uh, when the Olympics happen. Maybe not the next Olympics, but the ones four years down the line. He's really probably going to be close to his peak at that point, really will be peaking. Um, do you see what I'm saying? Do you see how this could be dangerous to me? I mean, I know it seems like I'm, I'm overreacting, but this kind of worries me. I feel like this could be bad. And I feel like 
it could become this thing where liking him or disliking him has this secondary political meaning mm. um, that uh, is not what we want. I did obviously have been following it and watching the clips and even watching like the Today Show went down. He is like a twin brother, which I didn't know. I've, I've seen all of it. it. It has been the elephant in the room. People are dancing around it. Some of the blogs I think have been more overt about writing about it, but it is kind of, it, nobody's really gone all, all in on it yet. And I haven't even well, Pablo, seen. Pablo Torre kind of had a funny thing. He was like, can you believe that this guy is winning races solely on grit? You know, it's like, <laughs> right. it was, it's, it's funny. It was like a funny thing, but it was like, that's the beginning part is funny. The end part of this might be less funny. Well, the other thing that's crazy is the, the, the highlights just watching him run, there's something about the way he runs that it almost looks like a sports movie where they're, they're speeding up the video the, or something, or like how the, le- the le- footage of him in the four by 400 running the anchor leg of that. And I know before I watched the clip, they win. You're and right. I'm watching the clip and I'm like, they can't win. There's no, you know, yeah. it's, it's just, it's just, it's, I mean, both is the same way where you watch a guy and it's like, uh, how can someone doing what everyone else is doing seem that different? You know, you just, um, it's, uh, I mean, I, as somebody who likes track, it's like, it's, it's just always exciting when there is like this great new talent. But uh, I, 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 you know, I, I wonder if we would even know who this kid was if he was white. Um, you so know, that's, I, that's I where I disagree I with you know. because I do feel like it's so much fun to watch him run. I'm not sure. I'm not sure it'd be less fun if like no matter what he looked like cuz to okay, me Okay, name me the fastest name me the fastest high school sprinter of any of the last 10 years. Oh, I can't. I the only reason I first saw the clip was because it was one of those where he came from way behind. And I thought that's why the clip was on YouTube cuz it was like, look at this guy. This guy came all the way from behind. And then I had the same reaction everybody else had. I was like, "Wait, is that guy white?" <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, you end up googling it and you're like, "Oh, Oh, he's from Texas. Oh, wow. Oh, this is interesting. But I think I think what stood out for me is just like there's two kinds of running forms basically for for speed, right? You have like that Carl Lewis, Usain Bolt, long stride kind of what we're used to. But this reminded me more of like the Ben Johnson style. You remember remember like kind watching power, Ben Johnson? Yeah, yeah just like yeah. it almost didn't seem real. It's like, how is this dude? how is this dude ripping through the track like this? And he just doesn't run like the other dudes. And how is that? Are they doctoring the, uh, the clip? Is this real? That's how I felt with the Ben Johnson stuff in the mid eighties when he really started going head to head with Carl Lewis. Turned out he was on <laughs> probably, yeah. and actually probably that some, style some drugs. Is, that style is more common. I mean, like the thing about bold and Carl Lewis, same thing is they had these sort of, they were unusually long from their knee to their foot. Yeah. You know, like Bolt's a tall guy, like Bolt takes 32 or 33 strides, I think, or 31 strides or something in the hundred dash. And almost every other runner is taking 35 or 34. Or I can't remember the exact numbers. I did the story for Grantland or whatever, but regardless, the fact of the matter is that if like a Bolt runs against someone who is his exact speed, he will still beat them every time. And that's kind of what makes him this sort of transcendent thing. This kid, yes, is more like more of, the, the just kind of the it's like power speed yeah yeah it's it's power speed and he looks like an actor in a movie 
playing himself. You know, like when uh like when we were growing up, the six million dollar man when they would show Steve Austin running, Lee Majors as Steve Austin, and they would always have to show him in slow motion so it could seem like he was going fast. Which I found out they used the same trick for Wesley Snipes in Major League, by the way. That slow motion for some reason makes somebody look fast. But if you actually had somebody just running full speed, it wouldn't be believable in a movie, right? Because nobody you you couldn't replicate what these real guys are doing. In this case, his style, it 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 honestly looked doctored. I didn't know what I was watching the first time I saw it. I was like, how is that guy going so fast? <laughs> didn't seem it it was like watching Forrest Gump. Remember Forrest <laughs> Gump when he's running from <laughs> running from his bullies? And it was like, oh my God, he's flying. Uh so anyway. Well, yeah, it might just be yeah, it's like it's how quick the feet are going down. You know, Johnny Mandel was like that in college. Yeah. It seemed like break out of the pocket. It would seem like why is he faster than, you know, uh, the free safety from LSU? That doesn't make any sense or whatever, but it just looked that way. Well, we've um, had this some is different because it's it's not an illusion. He's obviously faster. Like we're right. timing these people. We, <laughs> you know who um, we've had a couple running backs like this, but the one that stands out is for me is Herschel Walker. Where Herschel Walker, if he if he actually got going, it it, it almost seemed like uh, like sci fi or something, which is yeah. a little what this kid's like. Where there were some clips, I would follow this uh, this Twitter feed called Vike Fans, where it's like all old Minnesota Vikings clips. You would like this feed, by the way. <laughs> And they had this Herschel Walker clip and, uh, and he's just, he was just like kind of unlike anybody where if he was going well, I mean, straight, he, it he just did, seemed, I believe. Yeah. He was, he had, he had to go straight. He was like, you know, that's what the bobsled was good for him or whatever. Yeah. But, uh, he, uh, I, I think he won the hundred meters in the SEC, uh, conference track meet. He did. I mean, I know he ran it. He did I some track. One year he won. So yeah. you're worried about two things. You're worried one about, the the whole Trump side of this whole thing and where that well, might go. I mean, I'm just saying that that would be that would be a real plausible way to sort of to, if to that go for this to like that would happen. Yeah, well, it would immediately be like, well, then there would be you know, forty five million people in this country who are like, well, I hate this kid now. Yeah, I mean, it'd be like you know, it'd be like it would be all it would be like if 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 if. Trump came out and just said like he loved some author or whatever that would kill that guy's career in some ways. You know, it's like because there would be all these people who it would just that even if the guy had no idea that it happened. Um, it's just that like it seems as though um, that it's just it's going to be a that if if he becomes dominant, it's going to be uh, this huge story, and it and it's going to and just. The fact that, like, the fact that we're talking about this right now, okay, there's somebody right now sitting at their computer typing in on Twitter right now. It's like the only time Simmons and Closerman talk about track is if it's a white kid. <laughs> that just happens right now. It happens 40 times, probably, you know? Like, so it, it, That's not true, by the way. Easy. We've talked about track. I know. It doesn't matter what the reality is. None of this has anything to do with reality ever. Well, but that's <laughs> like, what, you know, it's just like, but the second uh, part of this, which we haven't mentioned this is the part that you, the Trump part is obviously sitting there, but the other part is this whole cycle we're in now with media where people trying to guess what the narrative would be and jumping a little bit ahead of it to, to kind of talk about it before it becomes an angle, which is what we're doing right now. But then this seven step cycle of 
the backlash to that, then the backlash to the backlash, and then the backlash to the backlash to the backlash. And it just kind of goes for three days with people in media bubbles talking to each other about uh, about what this means and all that stuff. It's like, I don't know that 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 would that would be a turnoff pretty quick with this story because I like watching I the guy I run. I think it's fun. Kid, yeah, this kid comes up on my Facebook feed in an ordinate amount. Like mm. it, it, you know, it's I, 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 I it, it, and I, it, and for a while, like it didn't just start happening now. Um, I, there is sort of a, just a natural attraction to the fastest man in the world or the, you know, I just, I think in a way that, that, that even though track is not a popular sport in the United States, like people are interested in that. People are interested in the heavyweight champion of the world and the fastest man alive. Well, look at, look at that. Look at our heavyweight champ now. We now have Andrew Ruiz Jr. It's like, you know, cause it's just like this fight or flight reflex. It's like the fastest guy in the world can run away from people and the heavyweight champion can beat anybody up, you know? And so they'll, they'll, they'll be interested in these figures, even if the person doesn't care about kind of the, the accompanying sport. Um, so if anybody becomes the fastest guy in the world, they're going to be relatively famous in a way most track athletes are not. It just seems like if it's a white kid from Texas, who's confident about his ability to succeed, that, uh, that that would have an effect on people. Well, I wonder if there's any way he could make the uh, 2020 team. I have no idea what his times are compared well, to everybody well, else. Definitely but. qualify for the Olympic trials. There's no, I mean, he ran, I think what he ran a nine, was it a nine, nine, two or nine, nine, eight or something. It was like a, one was wind aided, but like he'll, he will certainly, you know, it's like, okay, this fall where he, I think he's a, senior, right? So he'll go to college right. wherever he goes to. When he runs track this spring, he's not going to get slower. You know, it, next, you know, when he, you know, it's like when he runs track next year, wherever, whatever college he's at, he's not suddenly going to suddenly run like sub 10. So he'll get to the trials and then it's just the fastest guy wins. I mean, that's what they always say. The problem with track is the fastest guy. Always wins. Kyle, does this sound like the, in a Lonely Island sports movie starring Andy Samberg, <laughs> as the fastest guy in the world is a white guy from Texas, out of out of Andy Samberg wearing a blonde wig and just awesome. dusting dudes. He's all cocky. <laughs> They're yeah. making so he's being super cocky. He's got a twin. Are we sure this story's real? I got to do more investigation. This might be an elaborate prank on us. <laughs> Let's take a quick break to talk about The Ringer Podcast Network, where we have a couple things going on that I wanted to mention. First of all, Ringer Dish, our new celebrity culture feed, that's launched today officially with Amanda Dobbins and Juliet Littman doing a celebrity relationship deep dive on the rise and fall of Benefer. We have jam session going Wednesday. We have four realsies with my daughter on Thursday, and then we have tea time on Friday, this podcast is going to be humming all summer. And if you care about celebrity culture, if you care about, I don't know, Meghan Markle, post-baby, um, who's dating who, is Elizabeth Moss really dating Tom Cruise, all that stuff, I would go to Ringer Dish. That's one thing. The other one is the press box, which finally has its own feed. It's the old Channel 33 feed, and now it belongs to Brian Curtis and David Shoemaker twice a week, Tuesday. Friday, breaking down all of the media-related super smart subjects 
The pod makes me smarter. Kyle told me he's gained like six IQ points. I'm listening to old episodes. Like, yeah. I, I used to get shit for not listening, and now I, yeah. I can't get enough. There you go. Listen to nephew Kyle. Since we're here, a couple ones, the Bachelor Party podcast is humming full speed. We put them up right after the Bachelor ends. This week, we had Mallory and uh, Juliet just raving about Tyler C., who is uh, their strong chin god. So you got that. And then Fairway Wrong, get ready for that with the U.S. Open. And then last but not least, Big Little Live, our Big Little Lies after show. That's coming. We are two Sundays away from that. We have a preview show next week, which I will be promoting on this podcast. Amanda Dobbins and ESPN's Mina Kimes breaking down an awesome show that I saw the first three episodes of. Guess what? Meryl Streep's a good actress. That's one of the revelations I had from this uh, from this season. She might know what she's doing. So check all that out. All right, back to check. Uh, Fleabag. Yes. I finished season two over the weekend. You have watched both seasons. I think both of us have been equally blown away by this show. Um, what stands out to you the most about this show? Well, I, I, I mean, it, it was the second season was better than the first season, which doesn't often happen, but like, here's the thing. And, I, and I, for people who haven't watched it yet, I suppose you don't want to listen to this, or maybe this will make you want to watch it more. Okay. So the main character talks to the camera, okay, yeah. which I do not like. Okay. I don't like, people talking to the camera. I don't like voiceover in anything but Goodfellas. I think that's a, I don't like that technique, right? So I'm watching the beginning of this season and I was like, oh yeah, she keeps turning and talking to the camera. Like, it's like, this is kind of a problem. She's doing it too much. Like, why are they having to do it so much? But then she becomes involved with the priest and the entire thing just completely changes when we realize the priest can tell when she's talking to the camera, right. because when you think about it, when you're watching television, you know, you are essentially in the position of God. You're watching people operate in front of you and, and you're seeing what's happening in their world and you are God. So when she's talking to us, what she really is doing is talking to God. And as a priest, you can sense that spiritual connection. I've never seen that before in a TV show or a film where someone like where someone breaks the fourth wall. And another person is like, what are you doing? What's, what's happening? Like, you know, and it makes so much sense that the person who would recognize that is a priest. I just thought that was a brilliant thing. And the third rail of just having the priest as a romantic figure in season two was I, the degree of difficulty on that off the charts. I, I couldn't, I, as I was watching it, I couldn't even believe they were trying it. And they pulled it off and it was really great. I thought, um, I also thought season two was better than season one. I thought season one was, was probably, you know, a little bit, maybe a little funnier. It was just a little more out there. Season two was just kind of knew what it was doing the whole time and was exceptionally well executed. I thought the, um, the Kristen Scott Thomas episode was one of the best episodes I've ever seen of, of a half hour show. And the speech that she gave at the bar, um, about menopause and female empowerment. All that stuff. It was just, it was so well written and so well acted. I, I was like, I couldn't believe it as I was watching. I was like, this is like honestly one of the best things I've ever seen. And it was the best version of Kristen Scott Thomas, who's a really good actress. But hey, if she doesn't win an Emmy for that, I don't know. I then I, I don't know anything. Um, I, I just, it's so rare to watch a TV show that's, you know, really 
consistently very good to great, depending on the episode. But then that they'll have an episode like that that just goes to a whole other level. And uh I thought that was great. I think I think uh I think Phoebe's it's it's hard. Do you think it would have been better or worse if she was in Killing Eve? It's bizarre that she wasn't in it. At the same time, I'm glad she's not in it, right? Well, I you know, I didn't I didn't get through that show because when I, I started watching it, um it I thought it was I thought it was going to be, I mean, this is not, this is just a taste thing. I thought it was going to be a more realistic depiction of things. Mm. Like it was sort of, there was no, it was, it was not, it, it, I, I, so I, I didn't finish it. I know some people love it. I'm not saying it's not a good show just because I didn't watch it, but I didn't watch it. I only watched the beginning of it. I did the same. I watched like two episodes and it was, <laughs> you know, it goes into the DVR graveyard where you're like, oh yeah, I'll catch up. And then four episodes are on the DVR and you just kind of stare at it and you don't want to keep going. I, I, it's funny, like the Fleabag model where you just think about like how weird it is to have a six episode, 30 minute, 30 minute per episode season. And that's a season now with TV. Like it's completely different than what we grew up with. Kind of inconceivable. It becomes basically a three hour movie that they're just separating with these little breaks. And yet people are watching them all in one. I like I had multiple ringer staffers. They watched season two of Fleabag like within three hours after it was out. It's this new model of how we're doing stuff. And I really like it. Like I, I same thing with Big Little Lies. I I watched the first three episodes of season two last weekend. And you're just plowing through them. And I'm kind of glad it's not 22 episodes. I like that it's seven or whatever it ends up being. Same thing for Chernobyl which I, I thought was fantastic. I know you haven't watched it yet, but uh, same thing, five episodes, probably six hours total. I'm in and I'm out. It just seems like that's where things are going now. And, I, and I'm going to be interested well, to see what well, the ramifications are going forward. Yeah, I mean, you say like it's like a three-hour movie, and it is, except because it's broken up by the creator, it's really good because you know I can stop here and watch again tomorrow. Whereas yep. if you're watching a three-hour movie, you're always like, well, I don't know what's I, you know, I, I don't have time to watch three hours of it, uh, so I got to somehow deduce a point in the story that seems like a natural chapter break. It's like, but it works better this way when they're I agree. When they're when they're organized that way. I, um, I think most people prefer it actually. I mean, you're, you can make lots of arguments for like, oh, but TV was less, you know, lower stakes in the past and all that stuff. If you like a TV show, it's nice when you can just kind of see them all. Like when the new start, uh, the new uh, Twilight Zone came out, and you could like initially see like two episodes. The first two episodes, there was like there was some kind of like little issues with them or whatever. But I was like, oh, maybe it'll get better or something, or it'll change. But yeah. then I was like, I gotta wait, and that seems weird. Now it seems weird to wait for anything. Yeah, and we're, I mean, Thrones. We talked about it on this pod, but like Thrones is the last. Watch it. At the same time, everybody else is watching it. Show Stranger Things. I think that's dropping the Friday after July 4th or maybe even then of July 4th. And I can't believe, I know Netflix's binge model and I agree with it for the most part. And Fleabag's a, a good example of it really working well. I None of us here at The Ringer where we thrive on this stuff and we love having content that we can, you know, really dive into for six, seven, eight, nine weeks. Stranger Things 
it's so hard to be on the same page as everybody else when it comes out, you know? And, and then it, it has like a five, six, seven day shelf life. Everybody watches it. You talk about it and then you kind of move on. It feels like they could have owned the summer, even if they had done three episodes per week or something for three weeks, something like that, where people could have caught up, read all the stories, the way this internet machine works now. Um, with how we consume culture is actually really favorable to a show like Stranger Things. And it, they should audible from that from time to time, that model, I think. What do you think? Uh, I don't know. I mean, there was too much Game of Thrones coverage well, that's on true. your site and everywhere. <laughs> and it was like, it, it actually, it, it, it detracted from the thing. It was, it ended up being... Uh, um, at one point I watched the last episode of Game of Thrones almost with the sense of like, I just want to get this out of the way and get done with this now. Cause I'm sick of hearing people talk about it. I'm sick of like <laughs> seeing like great. Elizabeth Warren or whatever, like, you know, write a review of it or whatever. Like, it's like, it's like it became too much of a thing. Like I, uh, I, I, it, it was, it took away, I would say, and also it was, it, it ended up amplifying kind of the worst things about consumer culture now, which is this idea that they own these characters. Uh, yeah, they I didn't like Daenerys. that. They own Daenerys, and therefore they can decide um, uh, whether or not uh, her character can change or if that change is reasonable. I mean, first episode of the, of the series, Jamie Lannister pushes a kid out of a window, okay? He completely becomes a different person. Nobody gives a shit about that because there's no political underpinnings of his evolution. You can't look at Jamie Lannister and say that he means something else or whatever. But with Daenerys, they did. They thought, well, this is this represents something that I feel is important, and I want this popular TV show to reflect it. And <laughs> this idea that there was a petition of people, a p- people signing a petition yeah. to have the entire she- like I know they weren't really serious about that. I think they were. How stupid do you? How dumb do you have to be? to think that that is not only reasonable, but like something that you can do that you can just sort of say, like you can make a TV show again for me. I didn't like the way it ended. Like that's so crazy. Um, I think people feeling ownership over art to the point that they feel that they should have some say in what the art is, is the craziest thing that's happened this decade with culture period. And And it started really last when did those new Star Wars movies come out? So that was like 1999 range? Yeah, that's when the first one came. Well, and no, I know exactly when it started. When? It started with Lost. No, it, it started, started with, with the Star Wars with, movies. No. The Star Wars movies was the Lost. first time people were like, fuck you. you. Oh, sure. But people have always said, fuck you, the things they didn't like. But Lost was a new thing because the creators were actually like, we're interested in what people feel Yeah, about that's oh, bad. So the audience is wondering why, how come we're not, showing the other 36 people from the plane or whatever, I'm going to introduce like, it was like Pablo and some woman or whatever, some character, which was a straightforward fan service. And then they killed them off and they buried them. But once they had done that, once they basically admitted that what you think of our show impacts the way we think about our show, the whole thing changed. And now people were like, I kind of own Lost. I'm actually part of Lost. I'm going to watch it even if I don't like it. Right. And people began watching a show that they actively did not like and that and that ended up changing everything about the memory of that program. Uh, and that and that and since then it has never gone back. I because felt once, I actually person, think 
I think it started with Seinfeld, the season finale, and how mad people got about that because it wasn't the season finale they had in their heads. And I, I talked about this a couple of weeks ago on this pod, so I'm repeating myself, but it's really funny how few series finales there have been that people have been happy with. Like even The Wire, people were so mad during that last Wire season about the, uh, the journalist subplot. If you go back and watch the final episode of The Wire, it's a really good episode. I, it's, I think it's one of the five or six best episodes they did during the entire run, but nobody would ever say that because people were already so mad about the, uh, the journalist framing his story or whatever the hell he was doing. Um, I think we've seen that version more often. The only one that's really been immune to it is Breaking Bad, but because, that's because, in my opinion, everybody knew how Breaking Bad was going to end from the, when they saw the first episode. There was no surprise. You knew it was ending how it had to end, and they did a really good job with it. And then yeah, people I mean, were like, there, "Great there, job!" There, there could have been a surprise, they, but they chose not to. And I guess that's sort of what people ultimately want. They actually want um, the most predictable conclusion to these things because somehow, if it, if the, if the conclusion is predictable, or if it's kind of what we expect, that doesn't alter anything that had been built up to that point, like it doesn't alter the past at all. Like the thing with Daenerys now, that alters the past. Now people knowing if this, if we're, if we're talking about her like a real person, she fucking rides dragons, which is, right. anyway, anyways, so <laughs> okay, so this person does this thing at the end of, of the show, and then it's like, well, what about all these feelings I had about her two years ago? What about the fact that I named my kid Daenerys or whatever? Like, yeah, what, who asked you to do that? You know, it's, but whereas if it ends predictably, if she would have ended up like sort of, I don't know, freeing the people and then her and Jon Snow would, would run the kingdom together and she would be the leader and he would be the person behind it and sort of understand, then they would have been like, great, great, great. I'm so happy. I'm so happy because this dream I have about this imaginary thing is can match up with my worldview, which I only apply to TV. Well, and here's the other thing <laughs> that was well said. Um, people seem to think that everybody's going to throw a perfect game with a TV show. And they forget these are just normal human beings that are writing them. They're not gods. This isn't like my son is on a travel baseball team with one of the creator's sons. He's a normal guy. He shows up, he's wearing a hat. Nothing. He's not, he's not Socrates, you know. And I think people go into this thing and they think it would almost be the equivalent of when we're watching the NBA Finals. Everybody assuming Steph Curry should have should make fifteen threes a game. You're gonna make mistakes. I'm sure those guys would probably look at the last two seasons and be like, "Yeah, fuck, we probably should have done more episodes." But so be it. They're out of the next thing. I, I your life is your life is. So weird now. Your kids on a baseball team with the people who make Game of Thrones. Well, one of them. Does he talk to you about it ever? Because obviously, (laughs) I knew I shouldn't have told him this. Now we have to cut this out. He's a normal guy. He has a job. His job is he's a creator. Say he's abnormal, and I'm saying it's abnormal. It's just just, every time you talk about your life now, it just how he's so interesting to me because it's so the, the person. I met and the person you are now, your whole life is so different. It's I live amazing. in Los Angeles. They've, this is where they make TV and I movies. Know, I know. It's this yeah, random yeah. team. Um, Mike Schur is on the team too. Oh, really? Mike O'Malley is the commissioner of the league, or he was. <laughs> this is LA. It's fucking weird. 
This is why you're in Portland. <laughs> you had Thanksgiving um, with the Free Darko guy. I did. That's true. Free Darko <laughs> did come to my Thanksgiving. That is true. Yeah. You know, that is the, that's my equivalent. Um, yeah, I think the ownership that fans feel now of these shows is actually hilarious. And the fact that they think that art is something that should be litigated and controlled and um, I, the, all of it is just nuts. We, you could see it happening a couple of years ago when there was that whole groundswell on the internet about how female characters were being treated on Game of Thrones, a show that started with an incest sex scene and a little boy getting pushed off a tower. Like at that point, all bets are off with the TV show you're watching. Um, it, it's just, I don't know. It, it seems like people just like getting upset. That's what, that's my takeaway of Game of Thrones. People just like getting well, been I, out of shape about stuff. It's just culture is everything to people now. There's no separation between a person's actual life, the world of politics, the world of television, the world of music. It's all sports. It's all the same thing. Um, and it's, it's like uh, reacting to Game of Thrones is how people used to react. They would react to Nixon or whatever, you know, or is, but now it's all, the, it's all the same kind of, it's just like, you know, um, all these, you, anything that you can discuss is a way for you sort of discuss your personal political platform. Like any opinion you express about anything is just, a way to like understand me and what my values are because I love this movie or whatever, you know? Well, that's, wouldn't you say that's like a narcissism for younger generations? It's like the Instagram culture. Here I am. Here's a selfie of me. Now I'm here. Look at this. And it's well, like very, it's very, the culture is steering is it, now. Is it, is it narcissism if it's the normative way to be? I think it is. Like if ever, if that's, it's, if, you know, it like is okay. So, like every the complaint every generation has with the prior generation is that it's twofold always. So they don't work hard enough, and they're not tough enough. Okay, mm. and, that, and that's how this is how you know Gen X people feel about millennials, and how boomers felt about Gen X people, and the greatest generation felt about. You know, they were like, oh, we fought World War Two, and now you're going to protest and talk about Jane Fonda. And then it was like, oh, we cared. We stopped the Vietnam War. All you guys want to do is listen to pavement and, like, wear hats backwards. And then we're like, oh, <laughs> now it's like kids come to me and want to take naps at work. What the fuck does that mean? Like, it happens all the time. But here's the thing. If the complaint is people don't work hard enough and they don't have enough toughness, well, that does illustrate improvements in society. We do want to work less hard. We should want to have a better life. And of course, you're going to be less tough if things get better. Obviously, someone who have air conditioning is tougher than me when it comes to sitting in a hot room. They did it all the time. You know, it's like that's kind of the way, that's the trajectory of change. Basically, every generation has to work less and is therefore less tough. And the previous generation hates that. What do you think, Kyle? I think yes. <laughs> that was a good way to end the podcast. You're far well, enough you know, today. I got to I, I got to do one thing. Yeah. I, 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 my publisher really wants me to mention my book on this podcast. It's coming out next month. I, hate, I know. I know. But maybe I won't do a podcast. Oh, uh, well, we should have done that at the top. Uh, well, uh, let's do well, it now. Uh, yeah. Tell us about your book. 
Well, the book is called Raised in Captivity, and it's a collection of short stories. And um, it's coming out next month, and boy, it would be great if it isn't terrible, I guess. Um, I'm doing the audiobook this week. The audiobook's kind of interesting. I got, some, I got some interesting people reading on the audiobook. Kurt Loder, Brent Musburger. There's interesting people on this. Brent Musburger? Now I'm yeah, offended I wasn't asked. <laughs> it's fucking Actually, bullshit. If you wanted to do it, you probably could. You probably could do no, it. No, fuck off. No, you might you do it with Kurt Loder. <laughs> uh, Mike Verbiglia is doing one. What? Nice. Still kind of adding people. Yeah, it's like, because there's some of the stories are like third person and some of the stories are first person. So I am reading the third person stories and then I'm having different people read the first person stories. Do you think your audience will feel an ownership over the stories and get mad if the stories didn't go the way they wanted them to go? Or will they just read the stories? I don't know. It's possible, I suppose. I mean, it's, you can't please everyone or anyone, I guess. Uh, I, you know, I, some, the thing is that these are fictional stories, but I don't know how to put this, but like I, I generally don't like the way fiction is written. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I just, you know, I, I don't know how to just, it's not that I think that, that the way fiction is written is bad. It's just, I don't, I don't tend to like it. So these are fictional stories written as nonfiction. Hmm. Um, now, so some people who are like, oh, you know, I love Laurie Moore or whatever. Like I love, you know, George Saunders. My stories aren't like that. They're not like my stories. The idea is the story and the characters and the action are just there basically to uh, sort of embody the bigger idea. Um, and as a consequence, I'm sure it probably will maybe not appeal to the person who normally reads short fiction, but that's what this is the way I do it kind of, you know, and it was really fun to write. I really did enjoy writing it. I, yeah. I was going to say, it sounded like you had a good time as you were doing it, which, uh, as we both know, writing's not very fun. So that you had yeah, fun doing it, it, it is re- fun. It, it was, it was really, it was, it was, it, it, it was just a. Um, what I'd been doing basically is for like five years, anytime I had weird ideas, I would just put them into the notes of my phone. So then mm. I had like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these ideas. And then I just used that to kind of come up with these stories. Oh, I look forward to reading it. Good luck to Kurt Loader oh, I, and all the other people you asked to read on it. Well, you know, and I'm doing an event in LA and Sean Fennessy is going to on stage. When is that? What day and is I'm, that? And I'm doing one in San Antonio and Shea Serrano. Oh my God. Look at you. Yeah. Um, Always smart getting Shay involved with anything. I, exactly. It's like, he's like, um, uh, but you know, I never actually, this be the first time I've ever met Shay in person. I've never actually met him in person. So I'm really looking forward to this. He's six foot nine. Not a lot of people realize he's very tall. He's He's six foot nine. Yeah. He's six foot nine. What? He's gigantic. Yeah. Ask Kyle. It's huge. He's 6'9". Yeah. yeah, we've been trying tall. to get him to be on the Ringer basketball team forever. But he doesn't live here. He's now, huge. Now, that is a shock. I yeah. mean, I guess if you would have said he was 6'4", I'd have been like, oh, wow. But he's 6'9". He's 6'9". Only played through high school. That was it. How How, how is he as a player? Have you ever, have you ever watched <laughs> I'm kidding. Play? He's not 6'9". You, you okay, would have okay, believed okay, this, though. <laughs> Kyle was dying. Well, I mean, I've, I've only seen him sitting down. I mean, I, I, I don't even think I've seen him standing up. You know, I guess it would be a... Uh, I mean, he could be. He could be 6'9". I mean, like Rob Sheffield, 6'6". Six, six. Writers are tall sometimes. Rob Sheffield, 6'6"? Six, six? Yeah. Wow. Look at that. 
Um, all right, Chuck, good luck with the book. Thanks to The Zone. Don't forget to go to DAZN.com, and uh, I'll see you when you're in L.A. You got it, man. All right, thanks. Thanks.